Welcome to the Landscaping Podcast. My name is Joel Barnett and I'm your host. And in today's episode, I'm talking with Kate Seddon from Kate Seddon Landscape Design. Kate runs a landscape design company based in Melbourne. And it was great hearing how she started off in the business because similar to Renata Fairhall, she didn't start her working career in the landscaping industry. So she started out working in advertising and marketing and then ended up changing over. And it was great hearing the flexibility that landscape design offered her so that when she did start, she was able to uh, work part-time so she could look after her young kids as well. So there's a lot of people who are thinking of career changes and uh, and they've got young kids that I've spoken to. So it's great to hear someone who's able to do that and, and be as successful as what Kate is and also hearing how she has that flexibility for her staff as well. So it was great to see a different side of things and you don't just have to work nine to five, Monday to Friday. It's also had a couple of the gardens that she's designed be part of the open gardens scheme so it was awesome to hear and the reasons why the benefits of of doing that uh, and how much she enjoys doing it as well so plenty of tips and good stories in this chat with kate so hopefully you enjoy this chat with kate Seddon. kate thank you very much for joining us on the landscaping podcast my first question for you is how did you start in the industry oh joel thanks for having me along I had a start actually quite similar, I think, to a few people, much like Renata and um, other people in the industry. I had a whole other career before I started in landscape design. I was working in advertising in account management, which was, you know, the marketing side of advertising, dealing with clients, taking briefs, creating product in the way of advertising. And I had kids and decided that that was a very difficult career to pursue on a part-time basis. I did try it after my first child, but then after my second, I just thought this is not something that is uh, family-friendly. And I'd always been interested in plants and gardens, but not specifically uh, sure about which direction I wanted to go in and found I could get into Burnley to do graduate diploma in horticulture. And from the first day there, I was absolutely hooked. Just walking onto that campus, don't know if you've been there, but it's a very beautiful botanical garden setting. It's like a mini botanic gardens, gorgeous buildings, wonderful, inspiring lecturers. And I just thought this is this is my place. And, you know, I thought as I was studying, what am I going to do with this? And I started directing myself towards the more design-related subjects that they had. And after I'd finished the graduate diploma, I went on to do uh, a course with Andrew Laidlaw from um, the Royal Botanic Gardens. He runs a sort of one-year overview course of landscape design. And I went to all the planning design workshops and slowly but surely sort of accumulated a whole lot of design knowledge. I come from a design background. My father's an architect. When I left school, I contemplated doing architecture and then thought that's too you know, it's, you can't follow your father into the same career. So I didn't. But now it's sort of come full circle, which is lovely. Yeah. So how long ago was it that you that you started studying at Burnley? Oh, maybe 20, 20 years ago. Yeah, uh-huh. it would have been um, just over 20 years ago. Yep. And did you then go and work for someone else or did you go out on your own straight away? Uh, that's an interesting question. I worked with someone for about six weeks who is a very big name in the industry and it was a wonderful little head start. But I think they wanted more design-wise out of me than I was able to give at that time. And two day, I was only working two days a week. It was quite hard to get momentum 
and I had come from a very high-profile advertising career and it was, I suppose, a bit challenging being at the beginning again. And I just feel like we we had, we were sort of at cross-purposes. So after six weeks, we sort of agreed to part and he suggested I go and, you know, do a few of my own jobs and see how I went, which I did. So how did you get how did you get those jobs to start with? Initially, it was friends, particularly parents from my kids' school who said, you know, you've been studying, you've been studying, you should come and design my garden. And I'm like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And eventually I said, okay, I'm ready. And of course, you take on as much as you can handle. And so the first job was very simple, sort of a pathway down the side of the house in a car parking zone and a bit of planting around it. And then it built as I got more confident and more capable and learnt more and absorbed more as well. And did they teach you anything about how much to charge for designs when you were studying? Uh, I know Andrew Laidlaw used to talk about it in class. Um, It was always one of my bugbears that we really didn't have a very good sense of how to charge for design, how to set an hourly rate, how to determine how much time is required. And, of course, early on you're just, you know, working 100 hours to charge 20 hours. So, um, it's you know, it is, it's a long slog. Luckily, I had a partner who was bringing money into the house because for, 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 you know, a number of years you go, well, this is lovely and I'm really enjoying it, but am I making any money? And I do think, you know, I, I do a lecture at Burnley once a year, like a, a guest lecture to the design students, and I talk about starting a business and how I, how I started and the sort of processes and what you learn along the way and the things that you take on as you become more and more proficient. And I think a lot of students don't get that understanding. So I'm always saying to young people, you know, come and talk to me. I'm happy to talk to you. This is These are the things I can, I can give you. But, yeah, I, I think the whole area of, of charging for your time and giving value to your time is really um, undersold and probably not, Maybe it's different now. This is 20 years ago. Maybe it is taught better now. Do you think that? Uh, I can't remember who it was. It was only, it would have been a week ago, but I can't remember who I spoke to. But they said that in their design studying, there was a, a section called cost of project, but it was only a small section. So mm-hmm. it's, um, so they learned a little bit about it, but not, not enough to what you know. But like you say, it, no matter what you learn, you're going to learn a lot more through actually doing the, the thing in real life rather than at school. Yeah. And and everyone's different and every project's different. And some projects you bowl over very quickly and others you get bogged down for a long, long time. One of the things that I've found over time is just making it very clear in our proposal what is and what isn't in the proposal. And so when you do have clients coming back with changes or clients who say that they don't have a budget and then when you present the you know the finished documentation and get it quoted and suddenly there's a budget in front of them, that that there is then an opportunity to say, well, yes, that's all, we're, we're happy to go back to the drawing board, but there is time involved in in redesigning, and it's time that needs to be paid for. Yeah, I reckon um, that's a, that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to ask in the early days when they're not as confident in themselves to ask for the, the all these changes that the clients are making. Yeah, going to cost money. Yeah, exactly. So, did you get the? Did you use your um? Uh, advertising and marketing experience to get work early on or was it not relevant to, to um, what you're doing? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think it was very relevant in the sense of teaching me about clients, about how to deal with clients, about um, first of all, 
interpreting a brief from what they say, developing a design and being able to present it appropriately, and then managing the project, you know, cost management, time management, all of that. That was very helpful. I have to say I haven't used marketing per se in my career. I've, I've been very fortunate in that I've had a few good opportunities early on to get a bit of exposure in magazines with open gardens. John Patrick was very supportive um, in getting a couple of those opportunities my way. And equally, you know, Andrew, Andrew Laidlaw has been very supportive in sending briefs my way for a long time when he wasn't doing private landscapes. But yeah, it's been word of mouth, um, word of mouth initially through friends and then through PR opportunities and then over time through architects and designers. And so now most, well, not most, probably, you know, 60, 70% of our work is actually in conjunction with architects and designers um, as as part of a, you know, a new build or a renovation. And did you ever go out actively to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, pursuing the architects to try and get work with them or did it just organically happen? Organically. Yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, I, I wonder how that happens. I'm sure it does happen. But I think at the end of the day, there's so many fabulous designers around both in landscape and architecture that um, most people aren't sort of waiting for the call from another colleague saying, hi, I'm here for you, you know, I want to offer you your services. I think it really is a word of mouth thing and I think word of mouth is really important. And we're in a we're in a very small town. You know, you want to make sure that your reputation precedes you in a good way, not a bad way. <laughs> I've heard uh, some marketing people talk about how uh, word of mouth isn't marketing, Do you, but but I feel like it's it's the best way to to run a business is by aiming to have a good uh, source of work coming from word of mouth because if you're getting that, you're obviously doing something right. The- yeah, I, I mean the best recommendation is 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 a you know person to person recommendation, and of course that's not marketing because it doesn't have a dollar value to it. You know, it doesn't have a a placement cost for advertising or, or um, you know, any other sort of marketing opportunity. You know, I know things like um, having a show garden is a marketing opportunity, but it's really a PR opportunity, isn't it? I mean, you know, where do, where do you draw the line between the two? And a show garden lets you not just show your work but also talk to people. And, and whether that talking to people elicits an immediate response or whether it's something four or five years down the track where they come back to you and say, I remember that garden you did in 2023, Joel, was fantastic. We've been thinking about you since. And, you know, I mean, that's, I think that's more powerful. And so I haven't done show gardens, but I've done open gardens a few times. And the reason I like doing open gardens is that they are real, they're growing, they're they're in place, they're in situ. And you get that opportunity to talk to people and whether it's talking to people just to give them some information about design or plants or looking at site conditions or understanding how things change over time in a garden, all of that kind of subtle education I think is incredibly valuable and also giving back to the industry in the same way that when you do a show garden, you're giving back because you're giving people the opportunity to come in and view gardens and landscapes. Yeah, I love the ideas of the open gardens as well because you get to see how things grow as well. So it's like if you've got a maintenance side of your business, you can do that. But if you don't, then that's a good way of going back to the gardens and saying, oh, yeah, that works, that didn't work, I might try this different next time. So you can learn from that as well as other people benefiting from it. Yeah, and people and people ask lots of interesting questions. And I, I just think that role that we have to encourage people to be more um, educated in their 
gardens. You know, plenty of people go out and they go to the garden centre at the weekend and they buy plants and they fail and then they go back and buy plants again and they fail. and You know, and then they come to having a design and they go, oh, that's a lot of money. But you go, no, it's actually money really well spent because it's money that's actually well thought through investment for your property rather than this ongoing kind of wastage yeah, I learned that even off on the track. <laughs> uh, I learned that even for myself when I did my first uh, built our first house. It was 2009, so it was the same year that I started the business, uh, yeah. and I was doing my own landscaping. And I just started. I did a little bit here and did a little bit there, and then uh, ended up having to pull some of out what I put in because I changed my mind on the way something else was going to work. So yeah. I was just sort of making it up as I go. Whereas, so then eventually, I even did a design for my own place because I needed to have something to work to. Yes, and, that's, and I'm someone who I'd been landscaping for uh, five years by then, and I still hadn't worked that out for myself. So you can understand why clients can think, not, not realize the value in getting a design done. But if yeah. You, yeah, explain that to them about that's just having something to work to it will yeah. actually be a better product and save them money. So we've got a few rural properties where it's you know much more about a master plan and about knowing the direction moving forward, and then being able to implement it in stages if necessary. And I, I just think that's so valuable because it's so easy to just say, oh, we've got all this space, let's just plonk the pool there or let's just plonk the bocce court or the, you know, whatever it is, the pickleball court, that's a new one. <laughs> um, and and then it doesn't flow and there's no integration and that whole idea of transa- transitioning out of a house and being given opportunities both to view the garden from inside the house but also how you move out of the house into the garden and it draws you out. All of those opportunities need to be kind of well resolved from the start and then slowly implemented. But I know at my garden at home, Joel, I will admit, you know, while I did do an initial design uh, about six or seven years ago, we did a renovation of the garden. Over time, you know, as I have things that we rescue from client projects, you know, um, discarded plants and things, it has become a bit more of a, I'll just put that in there and see how it goes. And sometimes it's a, it's a good experiment also for me to understand the tolerances of that plant. But, yeah, the designer's garden is not always necessarily super designed. <laughs> yeah, and and never finished as well. And never finished, exactly. Uh, so when did you, like, when you started out for yourself, were you working a couple of days a week, was it, or a few days a week to start with? Uh, so, Joel, I had um, a toddler and a, a sort of three- or four-year-old when I started my business. And, yeah, I, the reason I decided not to go back to advertising and to start out on my own was very much that I want to be able to manage my own time. So initially I was doing one day a week and then a friend of mine who's an architect said, why don't you come and work in our office space? We've got a spare desk. You can get away from home and that sort of influence of home where you get distracted by other things. So I started out going there one day a week and then two days a week and then three days a week and then four days a week and then um, they moved offices and I moved with them into a little separate partition space. And at that stage I then took on a freelancer, Hamish, who worked with me for six or seven years and he had a sort of permanent freelance position with me in that he would work um, initially one day a week and then two days a week and then I think we got up to three days a week and then he started pulling back as his own business grew. So um, that was sort of the start of there being more than just me and it was it's probably only been in the last six, yeah, six years or so that I have taken on more staff 
And um, at, but mind you, in the meantime, sorry, back to your original question, I probably have been working five days a week for, I don't know, 13, 14 years now. Yep. I started the business about 17, 18 years ago, I think it is. In 2006, what's it, 17 years ago. So Hamish left. I've had a couple of other people join me for initially freelance and now I have four staff and they are all, one of them is full-time and the other three are eight or nine days a fortnight. And so it's a much bigger beast <laughs> than mm. it was obviously in the early days. And, you know, that's taken a, a long while to get there. It's not an overnight thing. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, well, I've only had uh, put my first design employee on uh, this year and and looking to get another one on but you've got to you've got to have that amount of the work consistently coming in so having the freelance ones can help with that I imagine yeah and also because I think for a a while while Hamish was working with me I wasn't if I was working five days a week I was then also just taking school holidays off like because I needed to so I needed to be there for my kids which is a 14 weeks a year and it's it's a bit of a challenge for people if they're working full time for you to be leaving them, you know, just sort of a vanning ship. So it suited me and it suited Hamish at the time for a long while. And then initially the others who came on also had children at, in primary school and they were also wanting that flexibility. You know, we still, we, I always had a philosophy because of how it worked for me initially. I had a philosophy very much that we needed to support people and having full lives outside of work. And so for a long time that was also about people with young children and more recently it's been about who you know whoever's working for me um if they allowing people to have an eight day or a nine day fortnight allows them to have another part of their life and what are that whatever that is whether it's a hobby or whether it's spending more time with a partner or or kids or or your dog or cat I just think it's a good thing if you can do it and if it suits them for their own you know desire to have a career but also have another life yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, construction companies in uh, North America who do four day weeks, but they'll do ten hour days, so they still do forty hours a week. Yeah, but they can just condense it, so then you've got a three day weekend whenever which, you want, which is great. And I think it makes a huge difference to how people, well, how they're enjoying their life, but also how they view their job, and the job becomes less of a burden and more of a this is working for me, and you know, and and so it's a it's give give win win situation. As, as long as it works. And, I, you know, I do recognise the challenges of having small children and having demands and things that come at the last minute and there's there's always someone's sick or someone's hit their head in the playground or or you've got a doctor's appointment or, yeah, you know, I mean, you know. I, exactly. I'm at home at the moment because of school holidays, so I look after my kids on the Mondays and Tuesdays of school holidays. Right. And I, I find you, re- you don't realise uh, how how difficult it is looking after kids in school holidays until you've got them. Like, because yeah. my my wife uh, works kind of part time, but she can't take too many more hours on because, like, she can do that during school time. But then yeah. school holidays, I one of us will have to take time off for that. So it's one of those things you don't realise until you're involved in it. But then that does make you appreciate other people's challenges for that exact same reason. Yeah, totally. And you also can't spend the whole school holidays going out on exp- expensive excursions every day. There's a lot of sitting around and doing very boring stuff, but kind yep. of just, just relaxing and being quiet and yep. kids kids not, you know, 
being in that better zone. Yeah. Yeah. So have you uh, got a list of like landscape builders who you've always been recommending to or how did you start relationships with them? One of the guys we work with who runs a very small um, business, um, we studied together at Burnley. So we've been working together for, you know, close to 20 years. Other people I've met along the way, sometimes the clients have someone who they want to use. I suppose in more recent times, maybe the last six to eight years, we've been quite specific about who we would like to work with, who we'd prefer to work with. I think there's some designers who say, unless you're using my landscape contractor, I'm not interested in being involved. Well, we're not like that. But I do I do know we've been down the path, particularly with one landscape firm where um, things fell very wrongly apart. <laughs> they ended up um, actually skipping country. So it was pretty disastrous. And since then... We're very circumspect about who we work with and basically we work with the people we've worked with for a long time or with a very, very strong recommendation from another colleague in the in the industry. But, you know, you have to expand your, uh, your, your field a bit, particularly, you know, we've got a lot of work and we know that not everything can be dealt with by the sort of three, four, five companies we work with regularly. So... You know, I am open to um, looking at other people but but feeling like I really need to have an understanding of how they work, the quality of their work, but also, you know, the respect that goes between a really strong relationship between a landscape contractor and a designer and, you know, dialogue, you know, openness to discussing when things don't go right, how we're going to solve this together, not finger-pointing, um, but also um, just an a, a ability to interpret our ideas but not create their own design interpretation and it's a really fine balance because I do think good ideas come from everywhere and I often you know there's often expertise that comes from someone who works in the field to say is there a better way of doing this completely open to that but um but ultimately ensuring the design intention is delivered is really important so we've you know we've had relationships with some landscape contractors who sort of go off on their own bent and you just go okay well that's great but we won't be working together again. <laughs> um, and um, and others where you just know, you know each other so well now that that it's very easy for them to interpret and know that they are delivering what we want. But we're very hands-on on site and we're very involved and we really do want to be part of delivering ultimately the design that the client's paid for, you know, that they've put their faith in us and we need to deliver that. So do you do like uh, do you have project management as part of an extra or is that included in designs? It's an extra, yeah. Well, we call it supervision because um yeah, I mean I think it's it's supervision of design intent. It's not um contract administration, for instance, which architects do. But uh that's very much you know, I would say ninety-five percent of our projects we're involved with that supervision side of things. And the ones that we aren't We'll often have a phone call anyhow with the contractor because we kind of want to know that it's being delivered properly, even if the clients don't want to have our involvement because because of budget or yeah. um, generally. It's never well, we hope it's not because they don't want us involved. <laughs> but you know, you can't help, it's your baby. You can't help but want to deliver it beautifully. Yeah. And ultimately, so that the client does turn around and say, you know, that's fabulous work because you know you've directed it properly. Yep. Yeah, and I find that it's it's come with experience, but of working with different designers. But I found that the 
um, best thing to do if you find a design, like the client might want a design change done or you think something needs to be done, you can contact the designer and say, like, recommend, this is what I think, yeah, this is an option we can do, what do you think? And then mm-hmm. the designer could say, yep, that's a great idea, do that, or they could say, that that's not a good idea because of X, Y, Z. So yeah. rather than just saying we've got a problem, you always want to go with the solution to the problem and, yeah, then, which, and then work from there. Which is great and, you know, and great minds working together. You know, I, I don't know if I just said it, but sometimes sometimes the apprentice on site has got a great idea and it doesn't matter that they're the apprentice and, and you're the, the designer. They've still got a great idea and, uh, you know, I, I, we, we have a quite sort of um, flat hierarchy in our office, like we're all working alongside each other regardless and I think that's really important is that um, everyone can contribute. It doesn't have to be about you not having the status or the or the seniority or the experience because sometimes bright ideas come out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, we just had it put on a new apprentice uh, recently and in his second week he came up with an idea. Like So we were laying steppers uh, and using crazy paving and he, he said, should we do it like have one stepper spanning? over a couple of different steps and then, and then cutting out the gap in, in between. A bit yeah. hard to explain, but I just, I'd never thought of it doing like that. And we, we didn't do it because you wouldn't really be able to tell because there's plants in between it, so you couldn't tell. But I was blown away that he had that idea two weeks yeah. in, but then yeah. but then the next week he said, no, landscaping's not for me, and he quit. So that was an idea. <laughs> so I was really excited. thinking it got someone who actually can think for themselves that early. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, then that didn't work out too well, so that was disappointing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love that idea. Like everyone can have a good idea and you, you want to encourage people, even if you're going to say no to their idea, just to, yeah. to come up with it at least. Yeah. And to discuss it and air it. And, and you never know, that might lead to another idea, which is, yep. which is great. Or like four jobs later, you might be thinking, oh, remember that idea you had about this previous job? That'll work perfectly here. So yeah, yeah. yeah you just want to encourage as much creativity from, from everyone as possible because the more ideas you've got, the better it is. Yeah, sure. and I think that, and I think that whole notion of respect across all people you work with is really important, and it and it just engenders such a positive response on site. You know, acknowledging people, saying hello, you know, making them part of the process. Obviously, you know, not wasting time having a chat through it. You know, when you're needing to get on with work, and but you know, sometimes those chats are really valuable, and sometimes the fact that, yeah, the the that the person who's digging the trenches is is someone just as worthwhile as the as the site manager or the or the head of the landscape company. Yeah, yeah, morale helps on site as well. So those chats can, even though there's not much value in it specifically, yeah. in a grand, grander scheme of things, that does help. Yeah, in people's people's minds. Um, there's a project that you designed. Actually, before I move on to that one, uh, so do you do any planting like plant placement as part of the, the project as well? Yes, Joel, absolutely. I mean, we that's that's the sort of the finishing touches that we think are really important. And while our, our gardens are designed and, and have, you know, key hard landscaping elements and structure in there, the plants are what finishes it. And, and a garden without plants to, to us and to me is, is not a garden. So first of all, plant selection is really important when we're designing, but also then the procurement of plants. We we source most of the plants from our projects because we're very keen to get the right cultivars, the right um, species, but also the right specimens that have been brought up through their growth through the nurseries and you know that they're going to perform well. So we do that and then we get on site and we do all the placement because ultimately 
no matter how detailed the plan is, and it will be, you know, five of these here and seven of those there and that feature tree over there, you get on site and there's tweaking and there's the way you arrange the tree and the branches and the one that looks like it's going to grow out over the path where we turn it the other way and making sure that, you know, we don't have the back of the tree facing the front. <laughs> you know, that's, that's yeah, a key part of our projects and we will go back and tweak and we will unfortunately ask the guys on site to lift a 200-litre pot out of the hole <laughs> when it's been watered in and it's like... <clears throat> Like taking gumboots out of mud, and um, and say, can you please move it? And you know they may growl and um, grunt and uh, pitch behind my back, but ultimately it's about that attention to to care. And I think, I think also afterwards they go, well, you know, oh, it's really interesting what Kate does, and she's so specific. But then we see the ultimate result, and and they understand it, which is great. Yeah, yeah, we've said that happens well where we've had to make really minute changes but then you realize that that looks awesome the way it's been yeah. done so it's yeah. yeah it's it's like might be a half an hour effort for a you know 50 year benefit yeah to have that tree in the right spot yeah and look we're very much into a naturalistic style so when we're planting out groups of plants it's all about um it them being um lacking in regular spacing so i hate sort of a grid or a line it's always about tweaking them this way or that because that's how they appear in nature you know i do remember one one project where the clients had their teenage son plant some of the project and they proudly took me out the back and there was this like precision perfect grid of plants and oh my god I just wanted to be sick and what can we say because you know they've done it they think it looks great and the child's so proud of themselves so you're like oh great yeah hopefully in time it'll grow together and you won't notice it <laughs> yeah uh, yeah there's one project you've done recently which blows you away with some uh curved cobble paving yes where'd the idea from that come from Joel, it's really interesting, actually. Um, initially, it came from a little Japanese courtyard book, which had this lovely undulating pavement, but quite quite low undulations. And as we were building it, it's been um, an interesting challenge. Lots of people, I'm sure, are, you know, there's a few comments on Instagram about how you built it. But once we built it and I posted it, my, sin- my sister sent me a message saying, familiar and I went what and then I went oh my god I can't believe this my front garden in as as we were growing up my dad was an architect we had this 70s garden in front of a Victorian double-story terrace and we had an entry path that was like that like literally you were going between these big brick mounds that like wove so somewhere subliminally that sat there and I, I mean it's so familiar with me but I hadn't thought about it till then so I actually haven't told the landscapers yet because I think they'll just go, what? We ask you for more reference shots. Why didn't you give us that one? Because <laughs> it's actually in a book, a very old Reader's Digest um, landscape book. And so when I remember what my sister said, I showed the um, staff in the office. I went, look at this. And they all went, oh, my God, I can't believe it. It's different because it's brick laid on end, at, but it's, yeah, where does that come from? I mean, I I do say with design I don't think I mean there's nothing new under the sun we are all reinterpreting we're all taking inspiration from around us it's not like we're copying but you're you know you're manipulating ideas yep. you're looking at colors you're looking at shapes uh, you're looking at how people have done things in the past and contemporary and I think 
yeah, we're, we're very influenced by what's around us. But that one was a doozy because I really had not thought about it when we first discussed it and Daisy and I were working on it. And yeah, anyhow. And so I'm also, because I'm, I'm fascinated to see how it was, how it was built as well. So, because you've got some plants coming up out of it. So did mm-hmm. you put like tubes down so that? Trade secret. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I imagine that would have been interesting to, to freeform the concrete anyway. Um, we, we spent a long time thinking about it. We had documented it in a certain way um, and we did spend a long time thinking about it and that's the reason why I say trade secret is that form landscaping did do a lot of work in making it work. What was interesting about that site was that the the back of that house had been opened out to that back corner, which was uh, it had a paving slab there already that we couldn't remove and a very tall wall beside it that we couldn't remove so it was a very tight corner, but it allowed north light to come into a kitchen window. So the, there were very long, limited opportunities with what we could do there. Building over a slab, being against the house, we couldn't have any water coming into the house. So it was very much like, well, you know, do you just put, pave it and put pots there? Mm, very boring. So it was really lovely to see it develop and it it has been at the end of um, a long project and, you know, we've all been waiting for this bit to be mm-hmm. built. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. Everything had to drain properly, stay away from the house. It is trafficable for maintenance, but um, so it is, you know, it's got solidity to it, but, um, but it also had to have planting nooks and irrigation and drainage mm-hmm. and all fall properly. It's, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> well, the, the client thinks it's a, it's a, it's a piece of art. She, yeah. She's yep. Yep. Oh, hundred percent. There's a lot of things that that uh, landscapers design and build that is literally art that they do. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I think it's very hard sometimes when clients look at quotes or or you know, or they wonder why there's cost involved. You know, that always had a huge allowance of time that section because we knew that it was going to be time consuming. But yeah, I'm really glad how it's worked out. I can't wait to see when it starts to grow a bit because it's never meant to be covered in plants. Just the idea is that there's these ephemeral pockets of interest and then there's a beautiful rendered wall behind it where plants will go up the wall. But, again, not mass coverage, just green spots. Yeah. Did you ever get uh, stuck with motivation? Like where do, we, where do you get your inspiration from for, so not yeah, not motivation but your inspiration for design and, and ideas to come up with? there's five of us in the office that helps because we we do cross-pollinate and we're constantly sending images to each other about things we see um, we've got a little um, share thing on um, Instagram that just sends it to the whole team I I like traveling and traveling is a big inspiration for me so last year we went to England and Puglia and England I think in the 10 days we were there we went to 10 gardens and Puglia was not visits to gardens, but observations of landscape, which was just fabulous. That's a really different part of Italy that I hadn't been to before, very stark. And, in fact, they've got a horrible olive disease there and it's slowly killing all the olive groves all the way up from the um, from the tip of Italy. And it's a lot to do with um, farms and, um, and olive groves being abandoned and when they're abandoned, this has been allowed to run rampant and not stopped. It's devastating. So you drive past, you know, kilometres and kilometres and kilometres of dying olive groves. 
And when you think about the kind of hunt for the beautiful ancient olives that we have in Australia, mm. you can't believe this is happening. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's not particularly inspiring, but it's also a reminder of what we've got to do to maintain our, well, that's not a natural landscape, but it is, it's a cultural landscape. And um, in England, you know, seeing fabulous gardens, different ways of arranging plants, beautiful paving materials, fences, structures, I think all of that is exciting. And the other thing is um, going to the Landscape Conference, the Australian Landscape Conference that's in Melbourne every second year. So it was in March of this year. Did you go, Joel? No, I think it's around. it was around the... Uh, it's the same time the as the, show. Show, the garden show, exactly, yeah. which is kind of like I can see why they've done that, but at the same time it does make it difficult for anyone taking part in the show. Yeah. Um, so that's always inspiring because there's, you know, half a dozen overseas visitors, half a dozen Australian presenters giving you a different perspective. You know, increasingly they're talking about land management, they're talking about Indigenous land management, they're talking about global warming as very much as a key topic. So it's not just pretty gardens, it's actually a broader overview. And I think that's been incredibly inspiring for all of us. And, you know, you don't want to always be doing the same thing. And with with our company, it's always been about, you know, the the right garden for the for the setting, the right garden for that architecture, the right garden for that client and for that um uh you know microclimate there. And so we don't want to have a situation where we're producing the same thing again and again. And, of course, there will be things that elements that you see repeated, um, you know, we tend to curbs, but we also have very strong relationships with the architecture and about axial views and about opportunities to, you know, look out of windows and have transition zones outwards. But also... Yeah, every every project's different. Every uh, we do a bit of work down on the peninsula. We do work in the inner city. We've got projects north of Melbourne um, in the Macedon Ranges, down Gippsland, down at Bowen Heads. All of those have different situations, and you have to adapt to those situations. And you can't be using bluestone paving in in Sorrento or or in Bowen Heads. It just doesn't work. It's not a sense of place. So so everything, yeah, all of those settings inspire you as well. Natural settings, going out, I, I'm, we're going out to WA in September and I can't wait to see the wildflowers and see the natural setting there and just I just love that idea. I mean, nature always does it better than us, I have to say. <laughs> so, you, so you look to nature and you see, you know, whether it's a, you know, a windswept tree or whether it's a swathe of one plant going right through another swathe of another it's it's a beautiful thing to just get the brain wearing. Yeah, nature's got a bit more experience. <laughs> exactly, and we've got to and we've got to be aware of nature because you know we can't keep on designing gardens that are water hungry and maintenance heavy. And you know, I I, I struggle with very very advanced trees because I feel like the amount of effort to make sure that that lives before you know, however many years it is before it actually starts growing. I mean, you know, it has to put out roots before it puts out branches. That that concerns me, those sort of decisions, because I feel like the potential for loss is so high um, and and we should be working with trees that are more manageable, that will settle in more quickly, that will do the job for the client ultimately better with less intervention. Yeah, the plants, like there's no doubt that, 
plant smaller plants grow better in those situations because they have spend more of their life in that situation. Yeah. Just, no one's got any patience for waiting for that. No, exactly. <laughs> me, but, me you know, but, but, but putting in a two and a half, three and a half metre tree already gives you a bit of substance. It's not like everything is a half a metre tall and you really yeah. are sitting in, you know, um, tube stock city. Um, <laughs> you know, and we like, you know, when we're, when we're working with some of the lower mounding plants, yeah, we like to get a plant that's got a bit of substance rather than just a twig. But I do think, you know, it's a really careful balancing act we have to walk because, you know, you get a beautiful tree that's 60 years old that gets transplanted that fails after two years. Oh, my God, it's yeah. devastating. You yeah. know, all, yeah. all, all that time that is that tree has spent growing and creating oxygen and, you know, being a vibrant part of the environment and then we kill it. Yeah. Hmm. So what's the uh, the future look like for your business? You, you're planning on staying as you are and just continuing to produce beautiful gardens? five in the office I think that's enough people for me personally I don't want to get bigger than that I still like the fact that I know every job and while my you know fabulous designers and architects are working individually on their projects I'm I'm still very much involved in each of them and I think going over that size you start to get removed from it and also you just you become an administrator and and the last thing, which I think is the most important, is that you start having to take on jobs that you don't want to take on because you've got to feed the beast. So, you know, we're in a good position at the moment where we've got beautiful work with really lovely clients in great settings and ultimately you hope that you make the right selection, uh, right decision when you and the client decide that you want to be involved in a design relationship. It's so important that that is right from the start. And I always say that to our, when I first meet clients and, um, you know, and before you've written the proposal, I say, you know, I won't be offended if this doesn't feel right for you because you're going to have a long relationship with us. You're going to, you know, it's going to be at least months, if not years. If, if you don't feel like I'm talking the same language or we're not seeing eye to eye or you don't feel you're being heard, it's not the right decision for you. Also, you know, life's too short. You want to work on stuff that you inspired by that you like working with people that they're appreciative and you're appreciative of them and it's a you know you don't have to be friends you don't have to be seeing them for the rest of your life but I do have a few clients who have become friends and I do have clients who've come back to us a second or third time Um, and I think that's a fantastic legacy that says you know they've really enjoyed the process as well as the actual out you know the design result because it's not just the design it's about how we work together yep yeah, I spoke. I did a talk at I think it was the Melbourne Home Show, but I was talking about the importance of choosing a designer who you get along well with because you want to be able to talk to them. And if you if you're not happy with something, you want to feel comfortable that you can talk to them and say, "I don't like what is happening over here." And then they say, oh, "No worries, that's fine." But if you don't get along well with them, you're either not going to say it or they'll just sort of ignore you. So that it's yeah. an important relationship with a designer. Yeah, and and just um, yeah, I I, I think. You know, you do meet people who say, well, the designer wanted us to do this, but I wasn't really sure. And you go, but it's your house or your garden. Like, seriously. Well, well, we have to, as designers, we want to push our clients to do something that they weren't necessarily thinking about or are inspired by. At the same time, if what they want is, you know, X or Y and it it works within what we're designing for them, then, then we should be giving them that. But, you know, I can't say to a client who's, 
you know, on a <laughs> on a windy coastal cliff, yes, you can plant your roses because we know they're not going to work, you know. But you say, well, okay, can we find a sheltered place for your roses? Or can we give you something that gives you the same effect as roses? Do you want something with a scent or do you want something with colour? Or So it's it's that sort of thing. Yeah, there's some things where obviously you don't want to compromise because you're not doing the best job for them. If you're not giving them good professional guidance, then why are they engaging you? Yep. Yeah, I'm big on that as well. Like you want to, it's important to give them the right information because you're experienced and you know the right answers for everything. But at the end of the day, it's their house and you don't live there. So if yeah. they want something and they're not, like, and you're giving them all the information and they still want it, then yeah, yeah case there are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As long as, you know, as long as there's a provisor, oh, I want marble around my pool, actually, that's going to be really slippery. No, 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 I really want marble around your pool. I have to tell you, and I'm going to write it on an email. Yeah. We do not recommend this. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever have to knock any projects back? Is it yeah. not your style? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing because you want to be courteous about it and you don't want to offend anyone. And sometimes it is really to do with we've got enough on that this project will push us beyond our um, comfort level or you don't feel the relationship with the clients is going to work or what they want to do for that property isn't going to be enough to make the difference that you know needs to be made. And so, yeah, there are times, you know, reasonably regularly where we say, look, thanks but no thanks. And I think gut, gut instinct is a very powerful thing. 100%, yeah. Couldn't yeah. agree more with that. You get a sense, and I'm pretty good on it, first meeting, this isn't going to work. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you don't want to waste people's time and money and ours. I don't want to be doing something that we're each night we're up going, how in the hell are we going to make this work? And it's really unpleasant and they're not nice people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you can think oh, I feel it's going to feel awkward having to, you know, knock them back and say no. But I guarantee you what's going to feel a lot worse is taking that job on and then all the nightmares that are going to come up from it because yeah. you, you, you're going to be a problem to start with. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and that's what I say also, yeah, to the students is, you know, I know it's very hard when you're starting out and you, you want to get every job, but you also got to sometimes you've got that antenna that says no, 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 and that is the job that, you know, you're going to lose money on, you're going to bend over backwards, they still won't be happy and, you know, it's it's time wasted and and never recovered. So you've you've got to follow your instinct. And last question for you, Kate, is who do you think would be a good guest to have on the podcast? Ooh. Okay, so are we going away from designers, or are we uh, anyone you like? Okay, so Jodie O'Toole. Do you know Jodie? She's a plant broker. Yeah, she was on the Australian Garden podcast, which oh. is a podcast, and she I think she was a second or third guest. Okay, all right. Um, I still, I, yeah, I, she was she was good to listen to. So yeah, she's yeah. she's a very um, talkative and knowledgeable person. Yeah. Um, in the in the same vein, Chris England at Marywood Plants. Oh yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, and design wise, I thought maybe Fran Hale from Peachy Green. Have you spoken to Fran? I have. I messaged her. I'm pretty sure still. Yeah, she's a maybe. Yeah, okay. So no, um, this is a tip her over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> she's doing beautiful work. Um, yeah. She's an interesting person to talk to, and I think she has a very interesting, um, yeah, just she's very clever with business. So, yeah, cool. yeah. Perfect. 
All right, thank you so much for coming on and recommending those people, Kate, and sharing your story. I absolutely loved it, and I've got no doubt other people will as well. So thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Joel. I'm, um, yeah, very um, appreciative of um, the opportunity to have a chat, so thanks.